Uh, we are in a series on the church, and we're talking about the nature of the church, what it is, what it's all about. We've entitled this series, Divine Community. You remember as we gathered in week one, we talked about what the church is not, and then we talked about what the church is. Oh, I, I should dismiss kids, the, the kids who went ahead with Miss Melissa in the back. I told you I was tired. We talked about what the church is not, and we talked about what the church is. We are the ecclesia. We are the called out ones, the gathering of God's chosen people. This is the way it's described in the scriptures. In week two, we gathered, and we talked about authority structures in the church. And then the church really does not resemble the world in a lot of ways. The world, remember, there is sort of this domineering, this I have power over you mentality. But in the church, we have servant leadership instituted as the way the church is to be run with the situation with elders and deacons. The third week we gathered, we discussed practices within the church. We looked at the stuff that the church does, and the church does stuff, important stuff. We're going to talk about one of those particular pieces of stuff today. Last week, though, I want to remind you, we met and we talked about worship. I hope that as you engaged in worship this morning, I hope that some of you maybe uh, even kept in mind that idea of kneeling down and presenting something to God. And that something is yourself. And, and bearing these things in mind as we come into a setting of worship. Today we're going to be discussing the issue of prayer. 2 a.m. I woke up. And I've been up since 2 a.m. But 2 a.m. I woke up. And I, this is normal for me. I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes. And sometimes I go back to bed. Sometimes I can't. But I thought, you know, I go through my routine. I'll get back into a situation where I can go back to sleep. And so I laid back down. And I was trying to go back to sleep. And just about that point of time where you're nodding off, you know, that point where it's, where it's just like everything's kind of shutting down and the world's gone, you know, slowing and everything. Just at that moment, my dog burst through the door of my bedroom like the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. And comes, I, I don't, the door must have not been closed tight, but the dog hit it head first and came bursting into the room. And I'm like, what? And so I jump up because our dog does not normally do this. And I'm thinking, what is going on? And so I, I head out, and the dog is panting and, and jumping around like a nut. And I'm like, okay, some, something, somebody's here, something's happening. So I open up the front curtain, I look out in the driveway. There's no cars in the driveway except ours, okay? Doesn't look like anybody's here. I'm not seeing any cars parked on the road or no headlights or anything. Why are you freaking out? I couldn't tell. And, and so I, I'm like, shut up, because that's how you talk to dogs. And then I, I, and I close the door, and I, I went back to bed. And uh, no sooner had I gone back to bed than he starts scratching at the door. I'm like, what is going on? This is nuts. So I get up, and I, and I go out with the dog, and, and we, what are you trying to tell me, boy? Is, is somebody dead? Is Timmy falling in the well? <laughs> and, uh, and we go out of the house, and, and I'm like listening. Like, okay, is there a pack of coyotes hanging around? There's something going on. Can't hear any coyotes. It's dead silent outside. I never even hear it that quiet. And we're approaching 3 in the morning now, 3.30 in the morning. And uh, so I'm like, it must be the chicken. Something's getting the chickens. So I get flashlights. I go with the dog down to the chicken coop. Nothing's getting the chickens. I come back into the house. I'm like, you're crazy, dog. Shut up and go to sleep. And so I go back to bed. He won't stop. He can't, we let him in the room to try to sleep with him in the room. He puts his head on the bed, and he's freaking out. Finally, after this has gone on for a while, I go out with him. I'm like, what are you doing? And I hear, boop, fire, fire smoke detector in the basement just chirps. The battery was going low. 
And he heard that, and he just knew there's something downstairs. I can't tell you what's going on, but there's something happening. So I go downstairs, and here, here it is like 3.30 in the morning, and I'm swapping out batteries and a smoke detector in my basement so that I can go to sleep. Well, I come back up, and I go to lay back down, but guess who hasn't gotten the memo? My dog still thinks there's something wrong. And so he will not, so finally I'm just like, I give up. I'm, I'm up for the night. And I, I went ahead and put on a pot of coffee, and I've been up since then. And it occurs to me that maybe this happened so that I could bring this as a sermon illustration this morning. We're going to be talking about prayer today, which is essentially communication between humans and God. I was frustrated all night because there was a lack of communication going on. He couldn't tell me what was wrong. I could not console him after I had fixed what was going wrong because there was a lack of communication between the two. How much more vast and great the lack of communication between human beings and God. Now, it's not to say that we can't pray. It's not to say that God has not communicated to us. It is to say this, we don't always pray very well. We're going to get into that here in just a few moments. Would you guys agree with me that prayer is important? Excellent. We're going to talk about why it's important today. Then we're going to talk about problems that we typically have with prayer. And then after we're done talking about problems with prayer, we're going to listen to Jesus as he counsels us on what it is we're supposed to be doing when we pray. Right? If you're, you know, we're 10 minutes in and you're like, he's almost done with point two already? Don't get riled up. Point three is where everything is seated today. So we're going to be spending the bulk of our time there. All right. Uh, before we do, though, how have you done on your scripture memorization? Are you on it? I'm not seeing nodding yes or no, which tells me it's probably no. Let's see, shall we? Okay. This is uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to encourage one another in love and good, not forsaking our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging, it's there again, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Excellent job, guys. Some of you were on it. Some of you were like just waiting for another one. Another. I got that one. I'm there. Prayer is important. This is the first topic I just want to mention this morning. And it's like not even one we should really have to mention in the church, right? Because I've never met anyone in the church who's like, no, prayer's not important. There's nobody who's an advocate against praying. Uh, nobody who reads or studies the scripture that says, eh, maybe God didn't intend that for us. Prayer is important. There are more than 140 times in the New Testament where prayer is mentioned as happening or prayer is specifically recorded for us. More than 375 references to prayer in the fullness of the Bible. Is prayer important? Yes. Does your prayer life reflect that spiritual truth? Maybe not. Why do we pray? Because Jesus prayed. Amen? He did over and over again. He prayed privately, went off by himself into lonely places, and spent time speaking with God. He prayed publicly. He did it in front of crowds. He prayed with his disciples. He prayed over meals. He prayed in front of enemies. But he prayed publicly. Now, because Jesus did it, we ought to be doing it too. After all, he is the head of the church, we his body, right? He is the bridegroom of the bride, which is his church. He is the chief cornerstone upon which the church is built. So because he did it, we should all be engaging in it. But Jesus didn't just pray. Jesus taught prayer. In Luke chapter 11, 
uh, Jesus' disciples come up to him, and, and they ask him this. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. If you've got Luke chapter 11, you might want to just flip open to this passage and jot yourself a note. If not, open up to Matthew 6, and you can just jot a note there. Matthew 6, you can say, go to Luke 11. By the way, Matthew 6 is where we're going to be today, so that's the passage you want to stick to. And Luke chapter 11, here's what happens. His disciples, Jesus' disciples come up, and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And they're not just asking, like, can you show us how prayer is supposed to be conducted? But they're actually talking about something very specific in a Jewish context here. You see, rabbis in this day and age used to create special prayers for their disciples. Each rabbi would create a prayer, and it distinguished their disciples. So if their disciples were praying in the synagogues, they would use the rabbi's prayer, and people would go, oh, that guy is a student of or a follower of, and they would connect you back to your own personal rabbi. Well, it appears John the Baptist even did this with his disciples. He had a special prayer for them that designated that they were his chosen people, that they were his disciples. And so these disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Give us a prayer so we can be distinguished from other people. And Jesus does not give them a prayer so they can be distinguished. He says, all right, I'll teach you how to pray. And he teaches them how to pray. Now, unfortunately, the... the prayer he gives us has become for many people just a trite thing that we toss out as a, as a simple prayer. It's, it's like what we would call in religious terms a mantra. A mantra is just something you say over and over again, doesn't have any meaning, or if it does have a meaning, you might not know it. It just matters that you say it. And that's how the Lord's Prayer is often treated. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but technically it's not the Lord's Prayer. Who did he give it to? Us. All right, it, is, it is a prayer for the disciples of the Lord, and it's not meant to be a mantra. He's teaching us to pray with that particular prayer. Jesus taught prayer. He, did, he repeats this particular teaching from Luke 11 on the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we're going to spend our time today, Matthew 6. But in addition to that, he talks about prayer on a regular basis. One of the last things Jesus does with his disciples is actually discuss the nature of prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's being arrested, as he's, he's, they're, they're taking him captive, and he's being dragged away, he says to his disciples, don't you know that I could call on my father, and he would send myriads of angels, armies of angels, to sweep in and correct this situation if I wanted it. That's the power of prayer. He's saying, don't you know that's the way this universe is constructed and works? Jesus prayed, Jesus taught prayer, and the church prays. The church has always prayed. You remember when Jesus is, is leaving, and he's saying, I'm sending you a helper. He says, go back to Jerusalem. I, got, I want you guys to wait there until my helper shows up. This is going to be one who's going to empower you in a different way than I even have since I've been here. It's better that I go, that he comes. And he says, go and wait. And we're told what the disciples do when they go back. What do they do? They pray. The, the exact passage in Acts chapter 1, verse 14 says, they were of one mind and purpose, continually devoting themselves to prayer. Now, if you were here in weeks past when we talked about practices, you'll recognize even that phrasing, continually devoted to. This is how, in Acts chapter 2, this is how the church is described. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, right? So it is this perpetual, like we're coming back to this over and over again. This is the important thing we do. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we're given one of the shortest verses in Scripture. You want to memorize another verse today? You can have it when you just walk out of here. You can have it right now. 
PC. Pray continually. Pray continually. There it is. Two words. Can you memorize it? Let's see if you can do it. Oh, you guys are good. Pray continually or pray without ceasing or be unceasing and persistent in prayer. The church is told that this is to mark us out. This is who we are. We're to be constantly engaging in conversation with the God of this universe. Were you to ask anybody inside the church or outside of the church, what does a good Christian do? I can almost guarantee the first thing they're going to say is pray. They talk to God. So we know that prayer is important, which begs this question, why are we so bad at it? Why are we so bad at it in the church? And you might be thinking that's unfair. I'm I'm coming to you from an angle of my experience, my lifetime of experience in the church and then behind the scenes of the church and discipling people in the church. What we're about to do is not an attack on any individual in this congregation. Okay, so mark that out. It's not like Ben took note of something I did. It's, it's not an attack on any individual. It's not an attack on leadership in the church. It is not a, an attack on any of us. It is recognition of problems we have when it comes to communication with God. So bear with me as we talk about problems with praying. We are dysfunctional as individuals. We are dysfunctional as individuals when it comes to praying. Now, you might be thinking, hey, Ben, what gives? And I hope you're thinking that because that's a hilarious line. What gives? I thought we were talking about the church and what the church does. It sounds like you're talking about individuals. You just said individuals. Yes, because the individuals form the church. And our problems with praying as a church usually stem from our problems praying as individuals. How many of you have ever been excited to clean a toilet? By show of hands, anybody? Anybody like, oh, here we go. Some of you, maybe... <laughs> Some people are like, yes, I want to talk to you later. I want to, find out, I want to find out how I can have that joy, that level of joy. Uh, most of us are not excited about cleaning a toilet, not ever. Why do we clean it then? Because it's an obligation. It's mandatory. It's something we kind of have to do. If you don't, problems build up and a stink builds up. And so we know that we should and so we do. I find that is often how we approach prayer. We lack motivation. And so we feel like we need to pray out of obligation. Like, I know I'm supposed to be a Christian, so the spiritual thing that I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to pray. And so you try to designate a little time, and you try to just give something to God every day. You try to pray. Four out of five people in America say they pray at least once a week. You think that's true? I don't know. That doesn't seem reasonable to me. That doesn't seem right. Based on my experience in the church, I'm not sure that I could say that's right, even of Christians. We lack motivation. We lack passion. That is to say, we are insincere. Have you ever found yourself saying something to God, and as you're saying what you're saying, you stop and go, do I mean that? Do I really think that? Do I really want that? Do you ever back that statement up and go, Lord, I don't mean that at all? No? If not, it's because we maybe go through the motions with prayer and we're not being sincere about what we say. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 22. Hebrews 10 says this, Let us approach God with a true and sincere heart, an unqualified assurance of faith. So when we approach him, we should be honest with God. We should tell him exactly what's going on. If I, if I show up to a prayer time, I, I believe this earnestly. If I show up to pray and I, I've got some designated time to talk to God and I say, Lord, I don't feel like praying right now. I think that's one of the best things I can say at the front of a a prayer. Do you know why? 
He knows. He already knows. And that level of honesty with God is going to help you to approach God and reality. Is the heat on in here really high? Can somebody please turn that down? Otherwise, I am going to be like in a swamp in like 10 minutes. Ugh. I'm sorry. For those of you who are cold, put on a shawl or wear a sweater. I cannot take off too much clothes. Yes, th thank you for not doing that. Woo. All right. We also lack focus. We lack squirrel. Do, do you lack focus in your prayer? This is the biggest obstacle I have in my prayer time. This is, this, this is my confession. I will start out great guns ready to pray, and I'll start talking to the Lord. And two minutes later, I'm thinking about what I had for dinner last night or a movie I saw three years ago. I'm like, how did I get here? What happened? I was just talking to the God of this universe, and suddenly I've meandered ideologically, and I'm thinking about some other thing. Lack of focus. Rachel used the, the, the text earlier in uh, the worship service. Be persistent and devoted to prayer. Being alert and focused in your prayer life with an attitude of thanksgiving. Would you call yourself alert in your prayer time? Alert? Like listening for something? Paying close attention? I'm flighty. That's my natural self. That's who I am naturally. We lack focus. We also pray vending machine prayers. Do you know what I mean by vending machine prayers? We go to God when we want something, and that's the only time we go to God. Now, you might be thinking, that's not fair. Just a quick question in your mind. When we go to prayer requests, what comes up? It's almost always physical needs. It's almost always illness issues. We'll deal with that a little bit more in times to come. What do I need? Think about this. Imagine you have a friend. Let me put that in air quotes. A friend, and that friend only calls you, only talks to you, only seeks you out when they want something. And so they might call, and they might butter you up for a few minutes, but ultimately it's always to ask for something. They always want something from you. Would you call that a friend? What must God think when everybody who stops in to see him goes, so I guess you're wondering why I'm here. Here's what I need today. We pray vending machine prayers. We monologue. That is to say, we tell God things he already knows. It is so weird in the church and as individuals, when people show up before the Lord and they're like, okay, Lord, this just in. Here's what's going on in my life. Like he's going, what? That happened? He already knows. He knows what has happened before it will happen. He, he has declared the end from the beginning. God knows. So we're not really informing God of anything. Job 21, verse 22, here's what Job says. Can anyone teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? In other words, God's in charge of all the other celestial entities. Do you think you can tell him anything new? The answer to that is no. Another problem beyond what just monologuing is that many in the church just don't do it. They really don't pray. And you can tell. We are undisciplined in our prayer life. Sometimes it falls off. Sometimes it was never constructed from the beginning. Let me just, I, I want to set up a scenario, and I just want you to envision this. How can you possibly know somebody's not praying? This, by the way, is why I think four out of five people say that they pray on a given week. is because there's no test for that, generally. You can't go to a person's life and go, did you really talk to God? Did you really have a conversation with the Almighty this week? 
Here's how I think we can figure it out. Here's how I've figured it out in the past. Imagine that you and I have been talking about coffee for decades. We go on and on about it every time we're together. We talk about brands of coffee, the best brands of coffee makers. We talk about the types of water you use, how to best store the beans, the kind of grinders that ought to be used. We talk about great cups of coffee that we've had, and we have that conversation on a regular basis. Now imagine that you and I are together, we're sitting around the house, and you look at me and you say, hey Ben, you know what I could really go for? Pot of coffee. I see that over on my counter is my coffee maker with my beans right next to it, my water and filters right next to that. Would you just go and make us a pot of coffee? And I said, oh, I can't make coffee in front of other people. I get, I get kind of weirded out when it comes to making coffee in front of other people. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what. Um, well, okay, I'll make, I'll make coffee. And so I shuffle over, and, and I fumble around with filters, and it, I don't know how to grind the beans. I, it's clear. One thing should be clear to you as you watch me do this. It is Ben has been lying every time he spoke to me about coffee. He doesn't drink coffee. He doesn't make coffee. He doesn't know coffee. Now, again, you might be thinking, well, that's unfair. Ben, some people don't like public speaking. And so when it comes to prayer, there are some people who just don't want to pray in front of other people. Prayer is not public speaking, even if I'm doing it in front of other people. I'm not addressing you. It, it would be like this. I, I've, by the way, I, have, I am terrified of public speaking. I'm not kidding. I really am. Um, it, it, I get sick. Every time I have to get up to talk, it, it makes me sick to my stomach, and, and, and that's always been the way it has been. I'm not sure it's ever going to not be that way. But, but if, if, you were, if you had a crowd of five people around, you know who, what, what's going to happen if, if, if I'm responsible for talking with my wife? I've never experienced stage fright doing that. I've never, why? Because it's a relationship that she and I have, and it's ongoing, and it's there no matter what else. And she and I talk every single day, and it's natural. And we just communicate with each other. I've never been nervous to talk to somebody I love in front of other people. I've never gone, there's a crowd around, I can't talk to my wife. The reason I know many people in the church don't pray is because when it comes to a small group of four or five people and we say, hey, can you lift us up in prayer? And they fumble around like a two-year-old trying to tie their shoes. I know something's wrong. I know it's not really happening, or at least not to the level they said it was happening. We are dysfunctional as individuals, but let's get to the church. We're, we're dysfunctional as a collective sometimes. How are we dysfunctional as a collective? Well... We lack participation. It's the same issue we were talking about with worship last week. It's not enough to say the words. You have to mean the words and think the words. So we sing. We should express those ideas to God. When one person is leading prayer, they're not engaged in public speaking. The idea is they're leading prayer. Everybody is enjoined in that prayer. Think of it as a bus driver or, or somebody driving a boat. They might be steering the boat, but everybody's supposed to be on board. Does that make sense? And that's the way it is when we pray. That's why I love to hear amens come from a, a congregation when they're, we're in the midst of prayer, because it says to me, somebody's paying attention, and they're going, God, what that person has said, I'm saying the same thing to you. I agree. I agree with that. Prayer is meant to be participatory. We fail in that regard. We also fail in that sometimes people get up and they do prayer or preaching. Prayer preaching. You've caught people on this in services before. I've done it before, it, it, to my shame. 
you get up to start praying, and you're talking to the Lord, and you've probably heard people do this. Their pronouns start getting messed up. And they start going, you people need to, I mean, the Lord, Lord, can you see that these people should, and they change what they're saying because they were addressing the crowd clearly. Prayer preaching. Guys, if you're ever, uh, if you're ever speaking to the Lord, make sure you're addressing the Lord. We all need to do that. It's dangerous to fake that while addressing other people. We've also got a problem with vague Christian speak that does not really mean anything. Uh, we used to pray with our, our kids when, you know, all growing up, we would uh, go pray over them, uh, you know, as they were kind of going through the years. And so I remember we were praying with Aiden. He was three or four years old at the time. And uh, so we were kind of kneeling on the side of the bed. And I said, Aiden, why don't you pray for us tonight, buddy? He said, okay. Thank you for mom and, and thank you for my dad and thank you for our food and thank you for Gracie. Uh, and Lord, we just pray, Lord. We just pray that you just give us a holy blessing. And then he said it like three or four more times, and I'm like, and I'm trying not to laugh because, you know, he's praying. He gets to the end of it, and I said, Aiden, what's a holy blessing, buddy? And he said, it's, it's what God's going to give us. And, I, and, it's, and that was in his mind, it just all fit together. Here's the deal. In the church, we say these words all the time, and, and we think that they have meaning, but sometimes we stop and we go, what exactly does that mean? I want you to listen to this prayer. I want you to just listen, and I want you to try to figure out what I'm saying here. O hallowed Father, bestow upon us this day your gracious loving kindness. Make evident your virtue among your people, and may blessing rain down upon us, making evident your glorious goodness on this day which you have made. What? What am I saying? I don't know. Do you? Do you talk like that on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday? If not, why would you talk like that here? Why would you talk like that as you're declaring things to the Lord? If you're con- do you converse with God only in that way? Do you go to these and thou's when you talk to the Lord? Do you think he would be suitably impressed if you use big words? Or is he looking at you going, I know who you are every other day of the week. I know the sins I rescue you from. Honesty with God is terribly important. Vague Christian jargon should be expelled from our conversations. It, it, or at least if we're going to use it, we should probably explain it half the time. But when it comes to praying, be honest to God. Talk to him like you would other people to some degree. Talk to him in a way that makes sense to you as well as other people. Does that seem fitting? We also have a failure to be honest. We tend to not talk to God about the things that really are at the core of our present mission. We don't talk about our sins. We don't talk about temptations. We don't talk about our great spiritual needs or our spiritual weaknesses. We don't discuss evangelism opportunities. We don't discuss how it is we grow closer to God. Typically, when it comes to prayer time, we ask God for stuff. And that should make you keenly aware of what most of us think is most important. If our conversation with God is, can all boil down to, I need this to be right, I need this to be more comfortable, I need this to go well, I need that person to be healthy, Lord, please make my life here like my life in heaven. You might be missing something. Let's talk about instructions from Jesus. Praise the Lord God that we don't just have problems. You know, he's, he's given us this instruction to pray, and we have issues with how we pray and what we pray. But praise the Lord 
that he's spoken to these issues. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. The whole rest of our sermon is going to be in Matthew chapter 6. I really hope you brought your Bibles today. Get a pen out. Get ready to go. We're just going to go verse by verse and knock out some of this stuff. Instructions from Jesus. In verse 5 and 6 of Matthew, Jesus begins, you know, he's, he's engaged in the Sermon on the Mount, and he starts talking to people about prayer in particular. This is what prayer is all about. This is how it is to be conducted. And he starts out by saying, hey, here's one thing you need to know. Prayer is not a show. Don't pray in order to be seen by people. I've actually heard people say before, does this, like, disqualify public prayer? No. But listen to what he says. Don't pray to be seen by men. He says there are those who will be there to be seen by men. This is in verse 5 and 6. Those who are, who are praying to be seen by men, and they're, they're there expounding just to receive the accolades of those who are looking at them, right? And he says those people have received their reward in full. What they were seeking, they got attention. But he says when you pray, don't be like those people. He says go into your inner room, to a closet, to some place that is secluded so that it's just you and... God, just you and God, so that nobody else is paying attention to what he's doing. Get rid of your audience so it's just you and God. Now, this doesn't mean you can't pray when we get together. It doesn't mean we can't pray in the church, but it means anybody who's praying in the church had better be spending that time with God on their own before they get up here to do that. Next, we want to look at brevity. Brevity, what a godly feature. Being brief. You might be going... Amen. <laughs> Whew, come on, Ben. Get rolling. Brevity. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. And when you are praying, do not use thoughtless repetition. Do not use thoughtless repetition. Do not use thoughtless repetition. Do not use thoughtless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Did you catch that last part? What a glorious thing. He knows exactly what I need before I say a word. But look at what he's saying here. Don't engage in vain repetition, empty repetition. What do we do with the Lord's Prayer? Trot it out and repeat it over and over again without thinking about the words at all. Now, if there's one thing I have learned from church culture, it's this. Serious people who pray seriously pray long prayers. Is that true? Now, don't get me wrong, I've been involved in a lot of long prayers, some of them exceedingly meaningful and powerful. Jesus prayed for hours in the Garden of Gethsemane with, with God. So I'm not saying that long prayers are wrong, but let me ask you a question. Do you only get things accomplished in a long meeting? No, some of you who have been in the business were like, no, long meetings are the worst. We get nothing accomplished. Is Jesus' prayer here, what we call the Lord's Prayer, is is that a weak prayer? Is that a meager prayer? No. This prayer is mighty. In fact, we're going to try to cover it, and I tell you at the outset, we will not delve the depths of this prayer right now. This is heavy, and it's short. The uh, pilgrims, uh, I'm sorry, the Puritans, uh, Puritans in England at one stage of the game leveled an accusation against the Church of England, and they said, the longsomeness of the services is to be spurned. In other words, things are going on a little too long. That's what the Puritans told the Church of England. That's hilarious. There's something to be said for brevity when it comes to prayer. Remember what he said in the previous passage? He knows what you're going to ask 
before you ask it. Being brief can be a good thing. He says, pray in this way. Look at verse 9. Pray then in this way. Now, this text does not mean pray these exact words. When he says pray in this way, he's saying pray after this fashion or frame up your prayer like this. In other words, I'm giving you a template. This is what a prayer should be like. And he sets it out for us. And notice, it is brief. He begins by establishing status. Establishing status. Who's Jesus, when he's, when he's talking to this crowd, he says to them, don't pray in front of people. He says, go to your inner room, right? And so he's speaking to them as individuals. Go, off, go by yourself and pray by yourself. So he's talking to individuals, but then he changes, he changes his tense again here, and he says, and you all, this is how you should pray, individually. But look at the pronouns to the rest of this passage. We start this passage, and he says, our Father. We can stop and do a sermon on that first word, our. Because Jesus at the outset is reminding us that whenever we pray, we are not praying as an individual. We are not coming to him being just he and I. Remember in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah, has, uh, he's just defeated the prophets of Baal. And you remember the, the, sh the showdown on Mount Carmel, Right? And they call down fire on this altar, and the altar melts, right? And, and everything, like the stone on the altar melts. And so the people are like, God is God, and they kill all these prophets of Baal. Well, the next day then, Elijah gets a, a missive from Jezebel. You're going to be like those prophets of Baal as soon as I get a hold of you, buddy. And he's like, I'm out of town, and he bolts. He's afraid. Remember the God who just melted these stones. He runs away, and he goes off, and he leaves his servants behind at one point, and he goes off by himself to a cave, and he's in the cave, and he essentially has this conversation with God. He says, Lord, it's just you and I. It's just us. I'm the only one faithful left. Go ahead and take me. Go ahead and kill me now. God's response is interesting. He says, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed knee to Baal. 7,000 who have been faithful. When you pray to God, it's not just you and him, never, not in any circumstance, not when you're alone in your closet, not when you're here collective together. We are part of a family of God, the ecclesia, the called out ones. It is most appropriate, even as you pray by yourself, that you use the words our and we. We are the family of God. Our prayer uh, continues on from there to say our Father. We're addressing God as Father. In other words, not only am I assessing my status as part of a larger spiritual family with God, but I'm recognizing as I call him Father that he and I have a relationship. I give him honor and devotion, and I have a special privilege to meet with him because he's my dad. He is our Father. I'm not a spiritual-only child. I'm part of the church, but he's my dad. So we establish our status. Here's who I am with regard to you, God. I know that I am part of a church family. I'm, I'm part of a larger kingdom of people who serve you. And I know that you are my dad. Secondly, we address the prayer. I guess fourthly, I'm going down through my list here. We address the prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. When's the last time you used that term? Other than this prayer, hallowed be your name. Depending on your audience, does it change how you talk? 
So if you were to be addressing a king, that would be different than may, maybe addressing a priest or an employer or your spouse or a judge or your best friend. Right? You would change the way you talk based on what was going on there. If my wife said to me, Ben, can you please you know, get off the computer and come in here? I'd be like, things are cool. But if she said, my husband, your kids, or your wife needs your attention, I would go, oh, because she's called me out in a specific way. She said, I, now, I relate to you on this level. I have a certain ownership of you on this level. You're my husband. I'm your wife. I deserve something from you. By the way, I don't think she's ever done that, but she probably will now. <laughs> if she said, father of my children or protector of my home, it's invoking a relationship that we have. It's invoking a responsibility that I have. One of the best things you can do in your prayer life is to begin addressing God in a meaningful way. Address your prayer. Sometimes you'll hear me in prayer, and, and some of you I've heard do this exact same thing, where you'll say, you'll say something to God. You'll, you'll say, creator, and you pause. There, there is a, there's something that should happen when we address God where we stop and think about who we're talking to. Creator. And you wait until that sinks in. What does that mean? Or master, or deliverer, or redeemer. Whatever we say, we begin thinking about what that means. You guys have noticed probably that I, I, uh, I address God differently sometimes when I'm addressing him in prayer. And, that, and that's intentionally. It's not because I forgot <laughs> who I'm talking to. But it's important, I think, for us to remember the names of God because that changes how we interact with him. It is a point of meditation in our prayer that can dramatically change how we engage with God. I'm, I just threw together a list real quick. Let me, just, let me give you some names that might change your, your prayer time. Most High, Shield, God of my fathers, my strength, desired of nations, God of peace, our high priest, provider, Lord of heaven, Lord of armies, our fortress, first and last, unchanging one, teacher, master, God who is long-suffering, that is patient, you who declare the end from the beginning, king of kings, creator, judge, our atoning sacrifice, our salvation, Lord of the Sabbath, that is Lord of rest, deliverer, that is you who free me from bondage, good shepherd, Passover lamb, most holy, most worthy, the only wise God, my comfort, my friend. You see how the name can change your interaction with God. It just, sometimes you need to approach God and you need to have my comforter. Sometimes you've engaged in sin and you need to say judge. And you need to remind yourself of who you are and who he is. Why should we think about who it is we're, we talk to? Well, it, it reminds us of who we are, reminds us of who he is. Regardless of how we address our God here, I want you to notice that when he says, Father, he's, he says, my Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. In heaven locates God. It's not that he's there and not here, but it says this, you are beyond everything that is on this earth, and I remember that as I approach you. You're greater than everything that is here. Anything I have known or experienced, you are beyond that. And when we say, hallowed be your name, or holy is your name, what we're saying is, God, to even invoke the concept of you is terrifying because you are so different. You see, this is a call to seriousness right at the outset. I talk about who he is, and then I address his status with regard to me. You're holy. You're set apart. You are the God of heavens and earth. 
Who's the boss? What a stupid show in the 80s. Man, I hated that show. Who's the boss? We need to recognize rulers, and this is what Jesus does with this phrase. We get so used to this prayer that we don't think about what it means, because we've heard it like hundreds of times. But look at what he's saying here. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is an eternal kingdom. Every time we pray, we should be reminded of this. It should occur to us that there are kings and empires and emperors and governments and nations that have risen and have fallen, and those that exist today will rise and fall. All the while, all the while, our Heavenly Father has his throne permanent and immutable, unchangeable. When you approach God, you approach a God who's greater than any king or any power that you could approach on this earth. I know who you are, God. There's an important implication to this passage, though. We want you to rule here as you do in heaven. Do you catch the implication? We're saying, God, you don't rule here right now. Wait a minute, what kind of blasphemy is that? I mean, God's in charge of everything. Doesn't God rule everything? Well, let's ask Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 30. Jesus says this, I will not speak with you much longer, for the ruler of this world, Satan, is coming, and he has no claim on me, no power over me, nor anything else that he can use against me. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, judgment is upon the world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. The ruler of this world. In John 16, Jesus says the ruler of this world has been judged. Paul describes Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, as the God of this world. Whoa. So when we say to God, your kingdom come and your will be done, are we saying that God's got to take it away from Satan? Nope, not that either. Do you remember what John the Baptist was preaching? John the Baptist showed up on the scene and he said, the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. And he started preaching this. And people were like, ooh, I want to be part of that. What's the kingdom of God? And then when Jesus showed up, he said the kingdom of God is coming. But then he changed the message, and it's subtle. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is here. See, Satan did control this world. But now we reside in disputed territory. Our God has a claim on this world and everything in it. And Satan is trying to claim this world and everything in it. And the human beings in this world get to decide which they are citizens of. So when we pray something like, your kingdom come, your will be done, what we're saying is, God, I recognize there's a battle going on in this disputed territory. And let me tell you, I'm on your side. I am a citizen of your kingdom. I want your kingdom here. I want your rule here. I want your reign here. I want you to control this place. And praise the Lord God, that will be the case. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, um, Am I that? Is that no, nope, that's not where I'm going. Don't do it, Ben. Okay. According to frequently asked questions, you know, it, it, some, some of us might be thinking, uh, listen, Ben, I, Satan, Satan can't really rule this world in any sense. I mean, after all, the church of Satan is rather small. There's hardly anybody in it. Do you know what Satanists actually believe, by the way? little world religions uh, discussion very quickly here. Uh, Satanists don't actually worship demons, at least the church of Satan doesn't. There are neo-pagans who do that, but here's what the church of Satan says about this question. This is from their website. Why do Satanists worship the devil? Answer, we don't. 
Satanists are atheists. We see the universe as indifferent to us. And so all morals and values are subjective human constructions. Our position is to be self-centered. You catch that? Our position, Satanists, are to be self-centered. With ourselves being the most important person, that is the God of the subjective universe, we are sometimes said to worship ourselves. Our current high priest, Gilmore, calls this step moving from being an atheist to being an I-theist. I am God. Satan to us is a symbol of pride, liberty, and individualism, and it serves as an external metaphorical projection of our highest personal potential. In other words, we want to emulate Satan by rejecting God and everything. All I have to do is be self-centered, and I'm a practical Satanist. Now, there are not a lot of people who would describe themselves as Satanists in our world, but by the description of the Church of Satan, those people would be. They certainly emulate the adversary and their rejection of God. Self-serving self-interested, self-seeking, a God unto yourself, denying the existence of God and seating yourself on God's throne. Does that sound like our world? There are only two kingdoms. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Which are you devoted to? The two kingdoms, by the way, are not Democrat and Republican, in case you were concerned. That's not it. Uh, there are the kingdoms of man, and there is the kingdom of God, and we need to always remember that is the case. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 24 and 25, Paul tells the church of Corinth how this all turns out. After that comes the end, the completion, when he, that is Jesus, hands over the kingdom of God to the Father. Who won it? Jesus. And he hands it over to the Father. After he has made inoperative and abolished every ruler and every authority and every power, for Christ must reign as king until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That is the land of contention we now live in. Jesus is going to put all of this under his feet. So when you say, your kingdom come, your will be done, do you know what it means now? Lord, I know who you are, and I'm calling on your power to take place, your rule and your authority to take place here. We also ask for God's provision. If I were to take a measure of what people value and think is most important in the church, it would, as I said earlier, it would be stuff. Um, there was a period in ministry when I was in youth ministry where I reached a sort of breaking point. Uh, for those of you who read the news article, you probably have already seen this story, but I'll tell the rest of you anyway. I shut down prayer requests in our church gatherings at Northern Hills for a little while with the youth ministry. No more prayer requests. You might be thinking, Ben, you monster, that's terrible. How could you not allow prayer requests in a church gathering? Don't you care about prayer? And the answer is yes, I care very much about prayer, which is why I shut down prayer requests. I got sick of people telling stories about someone four to five times removed from a real relationship with anyone in the room because that person happened to be sick. They had a physical ailment. And so you get things like my, my sister's brother-in-laws, cousins, former roommates got hangnailed. Can we pray for that person? And you're like, you don't even know who you're talking about. Like you've never met that person. And you might be thinking, oh, but prayer for healing is good. Yeah, there's the scriptural precedent for that. But think of how much that consumes our thoughts in the church. I said something like this to the teenagers. I said, really? Right in the middle of the prayer request. We just stopped. Really? Really, guys? 
Every week we come here and I ask you what we need to be praying for and you hesitate, which tells me that you're not really taking uh, or talking to God on your own time. And then when you do offer something, you're trotting out some tripe about how your cousin's stepmother's former roommate is afflicted with hangnail or some other physical malady. Really, that is the burden that is keeping you awake at night. That's the most important thing you can think to ask the God of this universe. Can you not think of anything related to your own life or mission that might merit God's attention and God's intervention? So we shut down prayer requests. And if you're still thinking that's terrible, let me tell you, it was awesome. Instead of taking prayer requests, here's what I said. If it's important to you, here's what we're going to do. We're opening up the room for prayer. Everybody can just pray their own prayer as soon as they're ready. If you care about it, you talk to God about it. And we, we did. We went to popcorn prayer, and the prayers got way more deep and way more honest. And we actually ended up developing better leaders during that era. When we pray, oftentimes we engage in what my grandfather calls the organ recital. Uh, he, he said, every time we have the, the old folks gathering, we, we start out with an organ recital. And I was like, what's an, I didn't even know you guys had an organ at your church. And he said, no, you know, everybody's getting old and their organs are failing. So we go through <laughs> the litany of what's wrong with us physically. It's the organ recital. And he caught me off guard. I was like, that is awesome. The organ recital. I don't believe it's wrong to pray for healing. It is scriptural to pray for healing. But it's a pretty good indicator of what we hold to be most valuable in life, a serious display that we don't take the Great Commission seriously, and we don't think about a lot of the things God really called us to as the most vital and important things. Let me, um, let me illustrate this. Imagine we all work for UPS or some other delivery company. Every one of us has been issued a vehicle to deliver packages. What's your role? Deliver packages, all right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. But after two or three months, the CEO calls a meeting, and he's like, listen, guys, we've got a problem. Everybody just keeps writing up work orders to fix their vehicles. And you're, you know, you're, you're, tire, you're worried about your tire tread. You're worried about cracks on your tires. You're going, hey, the rearview mirror is, is kind of shoddy on this side. It's a little bit loose. And you're even telling me about everybody else's problems with their vehicles. This is what we focus on. This is what we harp on. CEO, I just want to intervene for just a moment here. I just want to tell you, um, Bob's got his truck in the shop. And I just, I want you to just call over there and just do whatever you can to make sure those mechanics do everything within their power to make sure Bob's truck is restored to perfect working order. And we talk about it and we focus on it and we harp on it. Meanwhile, nobody's delivering packages. Our bodies are temporary, guys. The trucks are going to wear out. It's not, look around this room, not one of these people, you know, preventing the idea that Jesus Christ returns in our lifetime, not one of these people is going to be alive in, you know, 50, 60, 70 years from now, right? And all the, all the young teenagers who still are sporting those fantastic frames that feel good all the time and don't have body aches are going to start looking like some of us. And then degrading and the wrinkles will show up and the back will hurt for no good reason. And they'll sneeze and suddenly they can't move their neck. <laughs> Why? Because the Lord is good and the Lord is reminding us that this does not last. It's going away. Just like the best car you've ever owned, it's going to eventually stop functioning. It's going to wear out. It's going to grow old. It's going to die. So what are we requesting from God? Are we asking for strength to do the job we're supposed to be doing, or are we just focusing on vehicle maintenance?
know what Jesus says when it comes to praying for physical needs in this prayer? See how much time he devoted to it? Give us this day our daily bread. That's it. But, I mean, God needs to know what all's going wrong. He already knows. He knows what's going wrong. Give us this day our daily bread is a phenomenal teaching. Here's what it tells me. I can trust him with what I need. Just mentioning it. I know he's got it taken care of. You know what I love about my wife? I could, you toss any detail at her, and she's got it covered. And she knows, like, as soon as she's, like, on something, I know it's done. Like, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry about it anymore. And this is what Jesus is doing with God here. He's like, look, we, know we need bread daily. You know what I need. Take care of it. Do you remember how Jesus responded when, like, the, the centurion came up and said, I need you to heal my servant? And Jesus is like, okay, let's go. And he goes, no, no, you can just say it from here. I know you got it. Jesus is like, that, that is it. That's exactly what I'm talking about. This guy knows who I am and how much power I have. This is the daily bread prayer. Lord, you, you've got it. When you were a Jew and you heard the word daily bread, what have you thought of? What would enter your mind? Daily bread. Manna. Manna, which means? What is it? The term manna means God said, look, you're, you're out in the wilderness. They would have, every day they could have starved, except God said, I'm going to set up food for you every day. You'll have access to it. Go outside, draw enough for today. If you try to hold it for two days, it'll have worms and maggots and you won't be able to eat it. Except for on Friday, then you can gather enough for two days and it won't go bad. So every day they had to go, I need my daily miracle, I need you to take care of me. And every day God delivered, day after day after day. When Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, every Jew would have gone, yep. He knows what I need. Might not be the Lexus or the mansion or perfect health, but he knows exactly what I need. Give us our daily bread. Notice then we ask for conditional forgiveness. Man, this is, this is rough. Who wants the mercy of God? Who would like to have the pity of God? Who wants, just a couple of you, there are three people in this room that want the pity of God. Everybody else is like, give me what I deserve. <laughs> you do not want that. If you want the mercy and pity of God, awesome. I want him to look at me and be like, oh, my little dunce down there. Nice try, fella. Let me help you up. We'll get you going again. I want him to see me that way. I want him to treat me with that level of forgiveness. But Jesus says something important here. He says, forgive us our debts as, as we forgive our debtors. That is a conditional. In other words, Lord, I want your forgiveness. I want you to treat mercifully with me. But only insofar as I treat mercifully with other people. That's conditional forgiveness. So am I saying that Jesus won't forgive you if you don't forgive other people? That's exactly what I'm saying. Unforgiveness is a serious, serious thing. If you doubt me on that, in your margins, write Matthew 18, 23 through 35, and you see exactly what Jesus says about this. He is explicit, completely clear. You do not have a right to hold a grudge as a Christian. Not against your worst enemy. Love your, love your neighbor, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We don't get to. In Matthew chapter 18, 23 through 35, just a quick synopsis of that passage, Jesus tells a story. He says, look, a landowner is owed more money than any hundred human beings could make in a hundred lifetimes. 
And that landowner goes to the person who owes him that money, and that guy begins pleading, have mercy on me. And the landowner feels, feels compassion or pity for him. And he says, you know what, debt's forgiven. Like this tremendously huge debt, like our national debt, right? Just forgiven. And he says, that guy goes out, and he finds somebody who owes him five bucks, and he starts throttling that guy. Give me what you owe me. The landowner finds out about it. He says, call that guy back in. And the scriptures are very plain. He says, you owe every penny. In other words, that debt I took away from you, that's yours again. And you're going to be tormented in prison until you have paid back every dime, which for a debt that size was never. Jesus is very serious about forgiveness. If you want it, you better give it. Lastly, protection against the real threats. Given my preferences about this world, I would like to request that there be nothing that could ever tempt me. Wouldn't you like that? Just no temptation. There's, there's nothing out there that forms a temptation. Wouldn't it be great if God made the world that way? Here's a great rabbi question. Why didn't he? There's a lot of great answers to that. I'm not going to do those now. Jesus says, recognize the real threat here. The real threat is not who won an election. The real threat is not how much money are you making or whether or not you even have enough food. The real threat to you and I is this. Look at the the passage. Look at verse 13. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What's the greatest threat to you? It's a threat to your soul. I don't want to fall. I don't want to mess up. I don't want to fail you, God. This passage teaches us a lot about how prayer is to be conducted. When we say, Lord, teach us to pray, he gives us great insights as to what that looks like. What's it look like? Well, it's brief. We're not blabbering. We establish our status with God. We establish our relationship with him. We clarify in our own minds who he is. We recognize him as king, and we call his kingdom here to reign in this place. We ask God for forgiveness conditional on our willingness to forgive. And we say, God, protect me from the possibility of temptation. I also think it'd be really good for us to start changing our pronouns when we pray. Remembering the church family, we, our. The power of our collective prayer as we gather together as a community of believers is contingent on the individuals who gather together. If we want powerful prayer in this place, we need to begin having solitary prayer on our own. Amen? Let's go to our master in prayer. Our teacher, thank you for the instruction. You are holy. To even think about you is to invoke power beyond our imagining. Lord, you know what this congregation needs. Deliver us from evil, Father. Don't allow us to be drawn into temptation. Father, would you do as your disciples asked? I I pray that we would just regularly come to you and say, teach us to pray. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray.